Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill this place. God, we praise you. You are good. You are faithful. You are present. You are a good Father who keeps his promises. You promised that you would always be with us, that you would never abandon us. And so we come to you tonight, Lord, as your children, seeking comfort, seeking guidance, seeking wisdom in the words of sacred scripture. And we pray, Lord, that you would just open our hearts and ears to listen and to understand, to receive whatever you have in store for us. You knew before the foundation of the world that every single one of us would be here in this place tonight. And so we pray, Lord, that we would be prepared to encounter you and hear you speak to each one of us individually. Guide us, remove any worry or anxiety that we may have in our hearts. Allow us to feel peace and rest in our bodies and our souls, to be attentive and focused on this time in your word. Guide us, bless us each in the ways we most need it, and we lay this time at your feet. Praying all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Come on in. Welcome. We Again, we are in John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42. This is the gospel for this upcoming Sunday, which is the second Sunday in Ordinary Time. So, this Sunday we will hear uh, this gospel proclaimed. It's happening right at the beginning of the gospel of John. And so far in the gospel of John, we have the prologue, which is, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's a very poetic beginning, and then we're introduced to the person of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist testifies that one is coming after him who is greater than him, that he is not worthy to unfasten the thongs of his sandals. And then we have this encounter where John the Baptist sees Jesus coming and he proclaims, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But it kind of seems like nobody's really around to hear that. And so this gospel reading that we're reading tonight is the immediate aftermath of that. It's the next day he sees Jesus again and his disciples are there to hear this testimony. Okay, so this is John the Baptist in front of some of his disciples, giving testimony about Jesus. So we're in John chapter 1, starting in verse 35. We'll read through this twice, just so you get a clear image of what's being said. This first time through, just allow your mind to be a clean slate, a blank canvas, and paint this picture in your mind as you hear it. Remember, John the Baptist is proclaiming uh, the uh, repentance of sins near the Dead Sea in Jerusalem in a very uh, completely desolate area proclaiming uh, that the coming of the kingdom is nigh, and people are flocking to him to be baptized. So kind of imagine him out in the middle of nowhere with a group of disciples, people coming to be baptized, and one day this is what happens. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. And as he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what John said and followed Jesus. 
Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? Jesus said to them, Come and you will see. So they went and saw where Jesus was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. Then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to read this a second time. Now that you have an image in your mind, there's John the Baptist here, two of his disciples, one of whom is Andrew, encountering Jesus and then following him. Now pay attention as we read to every word as it is read. Just kind of hang on each word and see if a particular word strikes you, resonates with you for any reason. You don't have to have any idea what's going on in this passage, but maybe something just pops out at you. A word strikes an emotional chord in you, a memory, it just provokes a thought in you seemingly spontaneously, pay attention to those things. Those are the ways that the Lord might be using this to speak directly to you. So as we read through this one more time, just listen for those words and details, maybe underline or write down what is it that uniquely stands out to you. John 1, 35. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples, and he watched Jesus walk by. As he watched Jesus walk by, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said and followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following him and said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter, was one of the two who heard John and followed Jesus. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. Then he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments, look back over this passage, and especially reflect on the things that stood out to you. Ask the question, why did this stand out to me? What might the Lord be trying to say to me through this detail? If you're watching or listening to this later, let us know what stood out to you in the comments. But for those of us here, we're going to take just some time at our tables and just feel free to share what stood out to you and why or what questions you have about this passage. And then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some teaching and some Q&A. So take about the next 10 or 15 minutes. So uh, a few things about this passage to help put it into further context. Um, I was kind of like illuminating uh, some of the Old Testament references that the Jewish audience at this time would have been well aware of, but that might be a little lost on us. And the first is there's this really cool literary dynamic in the beginning of the Gospel of John. And the beginning of the Gospel of John, it's segmented into seven days, just like Genesis is. So in the beginning of John 1, it says, in the beginning. 
just like Genesis 1, 1 says, in the beginning. And as we go further, the previous paragraph to this, in John 1, 29, it says, the next day. And then at the beginning of this passage, the next day. So there's this kind of sequence of days, and there's symbolism here. That in the very beginning, on the first day, in Genesis, God created light. And at the very beginning of John, in John 1, 5, it says, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Then on the second day in Genesis, uh, uh, the waters are separated. And what happens on the second day here, the next day, the previous paragraph to this, Jesus is baptized. There is a separation of waters, in a sense, between the natural water that he steps into and the spiritual waters of baptism. Now, in the sequence of John, this would then be the third day. And what happens on the third day in Genesis? There's the appearance of dry land, and all kinds of plants begin to spring up and bear fruit. And so the bearing fruit of the discipleship of John is what we're witnessing here. And that symbolism kind of continues as we go forward throughout uh, the Gospel of John. It's very interesting how he literarily does that in a very genius way. Uh, and so when you would hear as a Jewish person in the beginning of reading John, in the beginning, the next day, the next day, you would be thinking Genesis. Okay? And the Hebrew word uh, for the book of Genesis, Bereshit, means in the beginning. And so it's very clear to the Hebrew audience when they would hear that phrase, it's pointing back to Genesis. So that would be fresh in their minds when they were reading or hearing the very beginning of the Gospel of John first proclaimed. Okay, so that's first Genesis. Then this language that's repeated in the paragraph previous to this, John announces, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then he repeats part of that in this passage, behold the Lamb of God. Now if you're a Jewish person and you hear the phrase Lamb of God, what are you probably going to think of? Passover. Yes, because Passover is the specific meal every year, once a year, that has been commemorated for 1,200 to 1,300 years, which began with Moses in Egypt to remember how they were delivered from death by, uh, from Pharaoh by God and led into the promised land. And now there is a new person called the Lamb of God using kind of salvation language from the Old Testament, covenant language from the Old Testament, implying already from the very beginning of Jesus's ministry, there's going to be a new covenant, which will require a new sacrifice. And at the very beginning of the gospel, the sacrifice is pointed out. Whereas in the Old Testament, the lamb is sacrificed and consumed. Now in the New Testament, Jesus is the lamb who will be sacrificed and literally consumed by us when we come to mass every week and receive his body and blood in the Eucharist. So this is already being prefigured and kind of spelled out in Jewish language at the very beginning of John's gospel. It would have been very much on the ears and in the minds of the Jewish listener. And we can sometimes glaze over it because we hear those phrases or those words spoken very often, especially at Mass. We say those words, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Um, that's something we hear every week. It might not be uh, very interesting to our ears. It might be very common. But to them, to the Jewish people at the time, they would have been thinking, that's Passover language, and this is a new Passover with a new lamb, okay? And then lastly, something that would have uh, perked the ears of those who are reading is when it says, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. Messiah is the Hebrew word for the anointed one. The Greek word is Christ or Christos. So Jesus Christ or Jesus the Messiah mean the same thing, Jesus the anointed one. And in the Old Testament, when you would hear someone was anointed in the New Testament, you would automatically think of all those people who were anointed in the Old Testament. And those were priests, prophets, and kings. Uh, we read about in Exodus and in Numbers how Aaron and his sons and the high priests, they were anointed to serve in the temple. 
all those priests. Kings all throughout the Old Testament, Saul, David, Solomon, Absalom, Jehu, Hazael, Joash, Jehoahaz, all of these kings are anointed. And then Elisha, the prophet, is anointed with oil. So priests, prophets, and kings all finding their, their culmination in the person of Jesus, who is the once and for all high priest. He is the greatest prophet. He is the king of kings. All of that language would have been running around in the minds of the Jewish reader or the Jewish listener when they would hear those key phrases or see those key words in looking at this passage. If you think of Genesis, creation of the world, a new creation happening here, old Passover, old covenant, old sacrifice, now leading to a new Passover with a new covenant and a new sacrifice, and all of those Old Testament figures who were anointed ones were all foreshadowing the once and for all Messiah that we've been anticipating for hundreds of years that we have now spotted in the person of Jesus Christ, who John is naming twice, twice saying, behold the Lamb of God. So it would have been abundantly obvious to the community reading the Gospel of John, to those listening to John's testimony, exactly some of the details that we're going to follow about Jesus' life, his intention, and his mission. That this clearly was the Messiah, and that it was going to involve a new sacrificial covenant. So that's all kind of the Old Testament imagery. I'll stop there. There's a lot of other things I could say, but I want to hear what are some things that stood out to you? What are some questions that you have about this passage? Or I'll just keep talking. <laughs> Well, yes. we, we did have the question that came is that uh, those of us at this table seem to recall that uh, Jesus found Peter and Andrew on the Sea of Galilee by a boat. Yes. And here it looks different because then on the next, it says on the next day, mm -hmm. he decided to go to Galilee. Yes. So we just wanted to, you know, get that squared away. Yes. So um, just as in Genesis, when we hear the next day, the next day, and the next day, that language is figurative, it's poetic, okay? Uh, first of all, on the fourth day is when the sun and the moon are created, so we actually don't have 24-hour days until the fourth day. But the word for day in Hebrew means a period of time that's used in Genesis. So it could be a day, it could be a week, it could be 13.8 billion years. There's room for interpretation that is all biblically accurate. Uh, we don't have to interpret those things literally. We're not confined by that in our Catholic view of interpreting the Bible. And the same thing is being used as a literary device here by John. He's filling in gaps and using the language of the Old Testament of Genesis to show a sequence of events that did not necessarily happen one day after the other. So when he says the next day, he's talking about the next period of time that's relevant for my testimony about the good news of Jesus Christ. So, uh, and as I mentioned to your table, uh, I think the first season of The Chosen kind of reconciles these two scenes very well. If you've seen uh, that, that story, uh, Andrew, along with Philip, are followers of John the Baptist. And Andrew hears that they've seen the Messiah, and he runs and tells Peter, and Peter's like, yeah, yeah, okay, and they go back fishing. And then later on when they're fishing in the Sea of Galilee is when Jesus encounters them, and you have the stories that happen in the Gospels of like Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so these can very easily be reconciled. They're not contradictory. John, he already knows Mark, Matthew, and Luke. They've already been written. And so he's writing from a perspective of wanting to fill in some of the gaps and address some of the questions that are arising about the divinity of Jesus. That's his main goal, is to communicate that Jesus was not just some fantastical human. He was literally God in the flesh, the second person of the Trinity. He wouldn't have articulated it that way. The Trinity wasn't really hashed out yet. But he's trying to articulate, this is the Son of God, who is divine, who came to save us. 
He's not just a great prophet. He's not just this messianic figure from the Old Testament. He literally is God here in the flesh. And so he's not concerned with repeating much of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke said. He's filling in the gaps. And he's doing it in a very complex literary style because he's the most theologically complex and literary complex gospel of all of the four. And so he has a lot of layers of interpretation to him, but it doesn't present any kind of chronological contradiction if you can read it through that perspective or that kind of framework of interpretation. But it would seem on the surface that they would contradict. But they don't. Yeah. <laughs> it mentions where he's, they went and saw where he was staying. And then it says it was about four in the afternoon. Like, no. Is there significance to that? Yeah, it really happened. You know, like I love those little details. It's not like long ago in a galaxy far, far away. It's like, yeah, it was about four in the afternoon. It's like, that's what an eyewitness testimony would sound like, would it not? We don't add those kind of details when we're telling these fantastical stories or in legends of old. This is a real historical account of real events that really happened about a real Messiah who came to save us. And so you're going to find these details all throughout the Gospels. Jesus was below deck with his head asleep on a cushion. Jesus took six large barrels filled to the brim with water and turned them into wine. All these unique details about the particular number or position or time of day account for the fact that this is an eyewitness testimony. You know, um, So if a, a policeman knocks on your door, and they're like, oh, there was a break-in next door. Can you tell me what you saw? You're not going to say like, long ago in a land far, far away, I once heard of a mythical beast who broke into homes. You're going to say, yesterday, about four in the afternoon, I heard a noise. You know, that's an eyewitness account. So the same thing is true here. So I love those little details. When you read them in scripture, nothing is insignificant. They're all pointing to the fact that these are real events that really happened and that bear the detail of real eyewitness testimony. But other than that, there's no significance to four in the afternoon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yes, yeah. Almost to the end of the day because a new day starts at sundown in the Jewish kind of calendar. That'd be the only significance that maybe they were going to stay with him because it was the day leading into the Sabbath. Uh, that might be the only other, you know, uh, thing you could interpret from that, but we don't know. Yeah. This account seems to say that Jesus called Peter Cephas or Rock like on upon meeting him, like the very first moment. Yes, yeah. And I'm used to him like proclaiming that when he was like ready to hand over the keys of the kingdom. Yes. No, again, this is John's organization of his gospel. So again, if you remember the story of Jesus flipping over the tables and the money changers, that happens in all the other gospels like during Holy Week to really irritate the Pharisees. In John, it's in chapter two, right at the beginning, because John is not concerned with mincing words. He's like, he wants to get to the point. He wants to really theologically elaborate on the divinity of Jesus. So he's, he's getting through this, like those details aren't significant for him. They've already been established. So he's just noting here, this is the Simon that you've heard written about that later becomes Peter. But this doesn't mean in this moment, John is saying, this is exactly when it happened. Because again, he's using this literary device to say the next stage, the next stage, the next stage of ministry to kind of establish these details that need to be established early on so that he can get to the stuff that he deems really important. The seven signs, the miraculous signs in John, and then um, the, the, the book of the rest of his time in Jerusalem is how the, the Gospel of John is divided. Um, so in the rest of the Gospels, this happens in Caesarea Philippi. And that is, uh, there's good historical evidence for that, that that's exactly how it happened, where it happened chronologically. John is not concerned about chronology. He's concerned about the divinity of Jesus. That's what he's trying to communicate. 
So John is probably one of the least accurate in terms of the chronological sequence of events because he knows those have already been established. He doesn't really care about them. He's trying to show, here's all the things that I think you should also know to communicate the miraculous and supernatural power of Jesus to show that he is the Son of God. So all he's doing here is establishing this Simon guy, this is Peter, who you've heard that was renamed and is the leader of the church. Yeah, but it didn't happen here in this way. Yeah. Jasper, did you have a question? Yeah, that was my question. Oh, sick. Awesome. Yeah. Sure. We're hearing a lot about John the Baptist, and he's kind of seeing like he's opening the way for Jesus, mm -hmm. and how even his followers don't instantly start yeah. questioning it. They ask him where he's staying, and then they even go follow him. Yeah. Like, why is it so important for John the Baptist to almost, I guess, open a way for, or just be a sidekick to help Jesus? Why is that so important? Yeah. I mean, that was who he was called to be from the very moment of his birth. I mean, that's pronounced to his father, Zechariah, at the beginning of Luke, that this one who is born to you will be one to make way for the Lord. And the prophecies of the Old Testament that apply to this like Elijah type figure who's going to make way for the Messiah, John the Baptist fills that role. But you're exactly right in kind of pointing out the, the um, I don't know, the very like kind of perfect way that John the Baptist does this because like it... One of John the Baptist's famous lines, in fact, it's from his last kind of sermon or last speaking kind of piece of dialogue in the Gospels is when he says, uh, he must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist, remember, he was a prophet out in the middle of nowhere for at a period of time where there had been no prophet for about 300 to 400 years. And the Jewish people were so excited that there was a prophet out there that they all came out in droves, even though it was in the middle of nowhere in this place where there was absolutely no vegetation or anything, you know, uh, appealing to go and see this person who was prophesying and baptizing for the repentance of sins. People had this hunger for something to happen, for these promises of God to come to fruition. And finally, they saw this glimmer and they went out. How easy would it have been for John the Baptist to say, that's right, bring it in. It's all about me. Look how great I am. The new prophet's here. The new Elijah's here. You have nothing to worry. Just follow me. Just follow me, baby. I'll lead you to the promised land. Like he very easily could have done that. And that's a huge problem in churches today, that people get so fixated on leading others closer to themselves that they stand in the way of leading others closer to Jesus. And we have to be very cognizant of that too, that this is not about us. So much of what this world offers us is about like, you need your life to be better. You need to reach this point of individual self-actualization where your life is all about you. You make all your own decisions. You're your own God of your own life. And we see where that leads. It leads people to a place of misery because we don't have the intellectual capability of being our own God. We don't know everything that's going to happen. We can't handle every situation that life throws at us. And we're not made for that. We have a heart that is restless until it rests in a God who is outside of us, who is beyond us. We all hunger for something bigger than ourselves. Otherwise, there'd be plenty of people walking this planet who are completely satisfied just in their own life and with their own, their own ideas. And yet we all wake up longing for something more, longing for love and belonging and truth and goodness and beauty. That's what we look for. And so our hearts are, are aching for the sense of the divine. And John the Baptist easily could have said, I'm, I'm the answer to all your problems. Follow me. Give me your money. Become my disciples. And I will make a name for myself with all of you behind me and we'll go overthrow Rome. He could have, he had the power and the influence to do that. Absolutely. 
And yet he knew what God was calling him to do, and he did not stray. He was faithful to what God asked of him. And think about that. Think about the sequence of events that had to happen. Like John the Baptist had to have that humility. He had to say yes to the calling that was given to him by the angel Gabriel. He had to be faithful to it. And then train his disciples in such a way that he would lead them so close to that promise of the Messiah that when they saw him, they could just freely go. And he was able to completely let them go. Say, all right. That's that. I mean, how hard is that even for some parents to let go of their children? You know? Or when they move away, to not still be like, yeah, but like, are you eating? Like, you know, do you, need, do you want to come home and do your laundry? You know, like, this, and, and that's the love of a parent. You know, I'm not saying that we need to sever ties the second they turn 18 and be like, see ya, sucker. You know, like, but like, it's hard for us to detach and completely let go and to trust that God has it in control. And yet John the Baptist was completely able to let go completely able to let go. And I've seen time and time again the destructive nature that can happen when there are people who are ministers, who are leaders in churches, who are even clergy, who are so attached to their own role or the things that they're involved in that they cannot let go. And it becomes about them. It becomes about what they can do and who's being led closer to them instead of being led closer to Jesus. And that's a huge problem. And John the Baptist is a great example of us, for us, and a warning against that type of, of, of behavior. He shows us very beautifully how to be completely in pursuit of the Lord, so that when the Lord shows up, we can completely let go. He doesn't say, no, wait, come back. I'm going to have less followers. People aren't going to think I'm this great prophet anymore. It's like, go oh, see you. That's what I came here to do. In fact, he says multiple times, there he is. Behold, stop following me. Follow that guy. It's not about me. It's not about any of this. It's about him. And that humility is something that we can really glean from when we hear this passage proclaimed. We think about, I really encourage you to really pray with the person of John the Baptist this week. Think about his humility. Think about how effortlessly he pursues the Lord. How easy it is for, for him to let go of earthly attachments or things that we could very easily might think would fulfill us. Attention, popularity, influence, power. And he's completely careless when it comes to those things and willing to let them go because he understands what it means to pursue the Lord and the Lord alone. And that is a beautiful thing to be aware of. And look at the fruit of it because that's one sequence of events. Then he has disciples who he trains up. Andrew and this other apostle. And if Andrew hadn't been trained in that way, he wouldn't have responded and followed Jesus. And if that hadn't have happened, he wouldn't have gone and got his brother, who is the first pope of the Catholic Church. We would not exist if it hadn't been for the faithfulness of John the Baptist and for the faithfulness of Andrew to go and get someone, to go and invite someone into the encounter that he had just had. I mean, how applicable this is to our own life to bear testimony to Jesus, to listen to the desires of our hearts, to encounter Jesus. He says, come, come and see, come and stay with me. And then to go and invite others. Because there are others out there in your lives who are the next Peters, and you are being charged with the responsibility to go and invite them. Statistically speaking, most of the great Catholic saints of our generation are not Catholic yet. They're waiting for a faithful Catholic to invite them into an encounter with Jesus Christ. 
to experience conversion, and to pursue him. That's our responsibility. We're called to be these Andrews, these John the Baptist figures. We never hear Andrew complaining, even though he's like the first one. It's then later, Peter, James, and John. So it's Peter, James, and John, his own brother, and the other two brothers. get. And you don't hear Andrew like, hey, I was first over here. Like, can it be a foursome? Can I go up on the Mount of Transfiguration? Can I go see you raise Jairus' daughter from the dead? Can I go stay awake with you in the Garden of Gethsemane? I won't fall asleep. Like, you don't hear Andrew complaining about any of it because he learned from John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was willing to let go of pride. To set that aside, to not care what people thought of him and care only about what people thought of the Lamb and to pursue him. If we echo that, if we become like John the Baptist in that sense, imagine how the world could change. Imagine the people who are waiting to respond to that desire in their heart for more if we just go and invite them. But so often we get attached to our own kind of comfort levels, our own way of life, our own kind of mode of being that we don't want to go out of the way to go and share with people because we think they might not respond. We want to be respectful. And that's, those are good things to have, but real compassion, real love means telling someone the truth and sharing the gift of salvation with them. And so many, there's so many future people like Peter, great figures in the church that will be talked about 200 years from now if we go and invite them. Other thoughts, questions? Yes, Marianne. Is that the answer to the question that you're looking for? Is that the answer to the question, what are you looking for? Well, the answer to the question, what are you looking for, they, they say, where are you staying? And so the answer is, we're looking for you. <laughs> You're the one that we've been looking for this whole time. And so they ask the question of a disciple, where are you, the rabbi, staying so we can stay with you? That was what a disciple did. They lived with their rabbi. They traveled with their rabbi. They stayed and ate. They did everything with their rabbi. And so what they're basically saying is, we've been disciples of John the Baptist this whole time, and now we want to be disciples of you. I love that this is, these are the very first words out of Jesus' mouth in the Gospel of John. What are you looking for? What are you looking for? That's a question that God is always posing to you and me. What are you looking for? What are the desires of your heart? to remind us that only he can truly satisfy them. And then we ask like, okay, God, like, how do I do this? And he says, come and you will see. He invites us into deeper relationship to remain with him, to literally abide with him. That's what that word remain, or when they stayed with him uh, in this translation, you are staying means uh, to abide, to remain in him. That's what we're invited into. And then when we have that experience, we go out and we invite others into it. Other questions, thoughts? Yeah. I'm Carly, by the way. Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Matt. Um, what do you think are good ways to like invite people? Yeah. Because I think that's something I struggle to know. Mm -hmm. How do you actually do that in a way that's not like off-putting? Yeah. Yeah, I think, so what are good ways to invite people? I think um, not shying away from talking about faith in everyday life. So I, 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 find that people edit themselves more than they realize. So think about like on a Monday, you go back to work, how was your weekend? Oh, it was great, I spent time with family. Or you can say, oh, it was wonderful. Oh, and I went to mass on Sunday and the priest said this in the homily, I've really been thinking about it. It's just like part of who you are. But for some reason we edit those things out and just our small talk conversation, 
we like kind of make it a little more like approachable and not controversial in our minds. There's nothing wrong with saying like, this is what I did, you asked, you know? And so the more we do that, the more we kind of open doors of awareness to people around us to know like, oh, that person goes to mass, that person's a person of faith. That might be someone I can go ask questions of if I'm curious about this or that. And it would be more natural to come up in conversation. And then it's merely a matter of having those conversations, being genuinely curious about what other people believe, what other people are looking for, and then to share testimony. That's what John the Baptist does. He shares testimony of Jesus. So to be able to say like, well, here's how I've experienced Jesus in my life. I was this way. Jesus did this. Now I'm this way. Come and see. I'm going to Mass on Sunday. I'd love for you to come with me. I'm going to Bible study on Monday night. It's open to anyone. You're welcome to come. You don't have to know any, any of the phrase, any of the, how to stand, sit, kneel. I'll show it all to you. You can just sit in the back and just take it all in. But come with me. You know, just keep inviting. Oh, I can't this week. Okay, maybe another time. You know, and that just becomes a natural part of the conversation. So easy to kind of get. When we talk about it as if it's part of who we are, it's all of who we are. And if we don't edit that out of our everyday conversation, then there's so many little windows and doors of opportunity that will come up. Um, otherwise, it is kind of like an out of left field thing. You know, you, you, someone presents like, oh, I'm really struggling right now. And we're like, well, you should come to church with me because it's great and Jesus is wonderful. And it's just like, boom, right out of left field. And like, nobody really responds to that. It's like, I'm, I kind of just need you to listen right now, you know. But if that's just, it, we're, if we're authentic about what we believe and how we love the Lord, then we, we just rely on the fact that people are genuinely going to be curious about that. And it's not going to be out of left field, even if we do take another step and say, I don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but, you know, or I've noticed maybe you seem like you're kind of searching for something. You know, I was at that point in my life and I encountered the Lord and he did these amazing things in my life. Maybe that might be something he wants to do for you. No pressure. If you ever want to come to church with me, you're more than welcome. You know, very easy way to, to make that invitation. You know, um, doesn't have to be complicated, but as long as we're authentically living out our faith, it can be much more natural than I think we realize. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't want to put it that way. As long as we're authentically talking about the faith that we live and not editing it out of conversation, then, um, then it will come out, I think, more comfortably. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions, things that stand out to you in this passage? Yes. This is just a small detail, but do we know who the other disciple was? Sorry, if you already said it. I did not already say it. Um, uh, it could have been John. Because that's how we know the account of this, that John is the one writing this gospel. How else would he have known of this? But he could have very well um, um, had just asked Andrew. Um, John does an interesting literary thing in his gospel. He never names himself except for the very epilogue at the end. Um, he's always, uh, well, it's considered that he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so there's all these kind of like filler disciples that aren't named in the gospel of John. Um, and I think, again, that is a literary device so that we can find it very easy to insert ourselves into the story. That we can easily see, like, I could be the other disciple. I am a disciple whom Jesus loves. And so all throughout the Gospel of John, there's almost this, like, fill-in-the-blank invitation to see how you fit into the story. Look at what Andrew did to go invite. There's another disciple here. What if that was you? Who could you go and invite? It's a very genius way that he very well could have literarily crafted his gospel to just invite you to welcome your footsteps within it and see how you would fit. Um, so we can logically deduce it could have been John. 
Um, you know, and then we have maybe a one in 10 guess for, well, Philip and Simon and Nathaniel show up after. Um, so maybe a one in six guess for the others possibilities. So, um, but yeah, for the purposes of John, it doesn't seem to matter to him that we know. Uh, it seems more to matter to him that he leaves it a little open-ended. So possibly we can see ourselves in the story. Yeah. Or it was him and he's trying to be humble. Other uh, questions, thoughts? Yeah. Um, it kind of struck our group that um, says so John and Jesus are cousins and like, it's almost like their relationship is now transformed in a way where it's like fulfilled into their roles. Mm -hmm. It's like, they're not just saying like, hi cousin, you know? No. Um, they're, they're not, John's now saying, behold the Lamb of God. It's like, yeah. guys like really fully recognizing like what's going on. Um, and then we also brought up that this is the last time uh, we believe they meet before, um, yeah, it's the last time they meet ever, right? I believe so, yeah. Because John uh, goes to prison and dies after this. Yeah, yeah. John sends disciples to Jesus, but he never sees him face to face. Yeah. He sends some disciples to correspond with him. But yeah, you're right. Yeah, and I think part of that could be on uh, the writer's part, on John, um, the writer's part to try and, there's an effort in the Gospel of John, not in a sense to dehumanize Jesus, but to place less emphasis on the human qualities of Jesus to show that he is divine. Um, that he is the son of God. And so that kind of natural familiarity he would have had with John the Baptist as a cousin is not mentioned here because that would bring Jesus a little more down to the human side of his nature, which doesn't mean he wasn't human. That's just not what John's trying to do in his gospel. So um, part of that is, I think, kind of the informality he intentionally writes in here to show like Jesus is someone different. John the Baptist has a particular role. But we learn from the other gospels, and John already knew this, that you already know that they're related in some way. You know, that they're distant cousins in some sense. Um, and so he's, he's trying to emphasize Jesus's divinity. So he, he emphasizes that relationship even less. Yeah. But it's very clear they would have known each other. They would have seen each other. Um, every Jewish male of adult age within 50 miles of Jerusalem was required at the time to make pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year for the three pilgrimage feasts um, of Passover, uh, unleavened bread, uh, and the Feast of Weeks, I believe. Um, Jesus lived in Nazareth, which was almost double that distance away. So he was not, uh, his family was not obligated um, to come to those feasts, but we know that his family was very faithful and they very likely did. And so they would have at least seen each other those three times a year at those pilgrimage feasts, uh, if not more often for family events, weddings, funerals, things like that. So we know that they saw each other somewhat often we know that there was probably lore and legend in the family about these crazy birth situations that happened and talk about who they would be and how it would happen. You know, um, I like I kind of like to imagine that, like, in some version of the past universe of Jesus and John the Baptist, that they had like a treehouse and that they were in the treehouse as kids, just like, OK, and then when you're bigger you'll be baptizing and I'll come and I'll be like, I'm here. And it's going to be crazy. You know, like they were just planning it from when I like to imagine a version of, of the past where that was a reality, but who knows? But you know, they knew each other well enough to where that kind of thing could have happened. Um, but we don't know. So yes. What point in John the Baptist's life did he actually just go out and begin with? Was he still a young person or was he? So um, it was typical at this time about the age of 30, that you would take on the position of a rabbi or a teacher, that you kind of needed to ha be at that age of about 30. 
Uh, and we know from Luke that John the Baptist is six months older than Jesus. So we can logically deduce that it could have been anywhere from about six months to a year before this, that he's baptizing, gaining this following, telling people to repent of their sins, the kingdom of God is at hand, and then pointing out um, that the Lamb of God is here among them and then sending his disciples to him. So really a lot in a short period of time. Though. Yeah, it speaks to the hunger of the people without a prophet for so long. And then all, you, all of a sudden you have some crazy lunatic dressed like the prophet Elijah out by the Sea uh, of Galilee in the Jordan River where Joshua literally crossed into the Promised Land. You know, of course you're going to go check it out at least. And then it's probably clear that he was a very dynamic, had a very dynamic personality or ability to preach in such a way that kept people engaged to want to follow him and to give up all of this because he was probably part of the Essene community which was a very radical ascetic community that kind of renounced all their possessions. They, uh, they did extreme kind of fasting and prayer and almsgiving. Uh, and so that's, that's a, a hard kind of life to, uh, to commit to. So he must have had some kind of you know, power to engage people in a dynamic way to convince them this was the life that they needed to pursue. So, yeah. Any uh, final thoughts, questions, comments? One other thing that I would like to add then um, is, um, hmm, what do I want to say here? Yeah, um, I think taking a moment to reflect on in your life, who are the people that have been Andrews to you? Who are the people that have led you to Jesus? And then to think about who are the people you can become an Andrew for? Because we all, in a sense, are, met, are called to journey with people in three different ways. We're called to lead others, to walk with others, and to be led by others. And at every point in your life, there are people who fill those roles, whether you realize it or not. And if there aren't, maybe you're feeling some kind of spiritual void in your life. Maybe you're lacking a mentor or a leader in some capacity, someone to form you and journey with you. Maybe you're lacking people who are kind of your spiritual companions to walk with you in your everyday life or in the same kind of phase of life you are. Maybe you need a small group or some kind of fellowship. And maybe you're being called by God in this moment to lead others, to disciple others, to become a, a confirmation sponsor or a volunteer here for some of our younger uh, you know, teenagers in ministry or at the church that you attend. Uh, or thinking about the people in your own family, in your own community, who, who just need a mentor to look up to and finding a way to do that. Um, all throughout scripture, these figures who respond in radical ways to Jesus and to this new way of life that would not have been possible if they didn't take these roles seriously, if they didn't see themselves as being intentionally led, walking with others, and then paying it forward to lead others and create that next generation. If the entire group of the apostles had just been proud and selfish, the church would have died in one generation. If they allowed it to be all about them, we would not be here. And any generation after that, if they had allowed it to be all about them and refused to think about those people that they were building up and discipling in the body of Christ, we wouldn't be here today. And that responsibility falls on us as it falls on every generation. How can we honor, thank, and acknowledge those who've led us, who've been Andrews to us? Who are those walking with us, building us up to be the faithful disciples we're called to be so that we can then go be Andrews to others? And maybe that's you this week sitting down with a map and identifying and naming those people or those opportunities. 
Maybe I need someone to lead me. I need a spiritual director. Maybe I need a small group of people my, my age or at my kind of spiritual level to walk with me. Who are the people I'm feeling called to lead, to invite, to encourage? We all have people in all three of those categories, at least possibilities that are being presented to us all the time. And we can say no in our own pride or our own desire to focus on our own lives, as John the Baptist could have. And yet, if he had, there'd be no Andrew. There'd be no Peter. There'd be no church. And so who are those people the Lord is placing on your heart? First and foremost, to thank your parents, your old youth ministers, your aunts and uncles, your confirmation sponsor, your godparents. Say, thank you. Thank you for giving me this gift of faith. And who are you being called to give that gift to? Because no matter how unequipped you feel, God can use you. Jesus didn't go find the best of the best in the temple. He found a bunch of random fishermen in the middle of nowhere who had been rejected from synagogue school and probably were told they'd never amount to anything spiritually. And he said, yep, these are my guys. And so if he can use them, he can use you. If he can use me, he can use, use you. Someone who was a middle school gangbanger, gone high school girl crazy person who left the church and was brought back to the church in some radical, crazy, traumatic way. If he can use me, he can use you. If he can use them, he can use any of us. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for these words of encouragement and these words of mission. Thank you for inspiring in us gratitude for those who have gone before us, those who have passed down the faith to us. And thank you for this invitation of humility to recognize our life is not about us, that we are not in the spotlight center stage of this grand story of salvation, but we are all characters on a stage with a role to play. But you are the star, Lord. You are the one that the story is all about. And other people need to witness it. Other people are hungry to know you because they're looking everywhere else for satisfaction, for love, for purpose, and they're not finding it because we can never find it in anything in this world. Everything in this world is temporary. Only you can truly satisfy the longings of the human heart. And so we pray, Lord, that you would inspire each one of us with a name, a group of people, a person, a relationship, someone in our life that you are calling us to share that good news with and equip us to do it. Equip us to be bold, to even appear crazy like John the Baptist in the middle of nowhere wearing camel's hair. All for your glory and for the sake of your kingdom. Because if we say yes, some of the greatest saints of our generation will come to know you. So give us the strength. Give us the discernment and the humility to allow you to increase in all that we do and us to decrease. Let our lives be more about ourselves or less about ourselves and more about you. Thank you for the gift of this time. Let these words be written on our hearts and inspire us until we hear them proclaimed again this weekend. We pray that they would inspire us anew. We pray all of these things in your most precious name, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <laughs>